0: Hello, hello, my dear audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Doctor Peter Resnick's Toolbox. Today I will be interviewing a very special doctor, but I ask him to join us at 2:05 because first I want to tell you about my new book, Taming the Debater Within, which was released a couple of days ago on Amazon.com as a paper copy and on my website as an ebook. Actually, it came out. Uh, a little more than 20 years ago as an article. But I want to share with you how this article became an illustrated book. I think it's an interesting story, and by now, particularly those of you who have been listening to me for a while know I love telling stories. In 2016, I published my book, Face Reading Secrets for Successful Relationships which, by the way, is doing quite well. I started receiving nice feedback from my readers. About six months after the book was published, I received this very intelligent and mature letter from a 16-year-old girl, Mara, from Romania. She wrote that she liked uh, reading about face reading because she was all suspecting that there was meaning behind one's appearance and that she learned that by being an artist, painting portraits. My daughter, Hannah, was also 16 at that time. So it was very sweet for me to exchange letters with this girl and to speak about her aspirations, because I had very similar conversations with Hannah. Soon after we started corresponding, Mara was getting ready, just like my daughter, uh, to graduate from high school. And as her graduation project, she decided, with my permission, to translate my book into Romanian language and to make her own illustrations to the book. And within a few months, she produced actually a book with over 60 original illustrations, portraits of different celebrities. The illustrations actually were much better than those in my original book. Then after she graduated, at the age of 17, Mara released a series of drawings, I have to tell you, they are so original, philosophical, deep. And then Mara published her first illustrated book uh, called Butterfly Effect in English Language. I love her art. I love her creativity. And I'm so proud to be her friend. And in one of my talks with Mara a while ago uh, um, about the tools I created um, over decades, I told her about an article that I wrote, and I was sharing with Mara the content of the article. And when I was talking to her, I suddenly realized how visual the article was. So I asked Mara if she could make illustrations to the article. That was about six months ago. And here we have a fully illustrated book. So now let me tell you about the book. It begins with a question about the puzzling experience that so many people have. Uh, listening, hearing that voice in our heads, so critical of ourselves and others at times with its negative remarks, not allowing us to enjoy the present moment, at times dragging us into regret or guilt about the past, and at times springing us, uh, us into possible dooms and glooms of the future. It feels like we are running a race in our heads, a race that leads to any place but The only place that is real and true, which is the present moment with its infinite possibilities. What we hear is the voice of our inner debater. Ladies and gentlemen, I I think, although I'm not sure of it, in one of my shows, maybe six months or nine months ago, I spoke about the debater. Anyway, now it's a fully illustrated book. So let me indulge myself. Let me tell you about the debater. Um, Everyone has it. Everyone was born with it. And it's always present in our lives to a greater or lesser degree. It hides under many appearances, so we would not recognize it. So it could control our lives. Is there a way to get rid of it? No. To silence it once and for all? No. It does serve a purpose. We can recognize what it is. Be clear about the times when it tries to take over. We can learn from it, grow in the process of understanding all the faces of it. So this book, through a simple but powerful technique and beautiful illustrations that Mara made, teaches you how to tame your debater within. Take a risk. Get the book. What do you can get the paper copy on Amazon.com or an e- e- uh, e-book on my website. Hello there. Hi. So, Hi. Uh, I, we are old friends now. You've been listening to me for a while. So, I can ask you for a favor. Okay. Um, please write a review. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I uh, have here with us, Dr. Norman Rosenthal. Welcome, doctor. Uh, And I just, let me say a few words before I um, let uh, Dr. Rosenthal speak. I want to tell you a few words about him. Dr. Rosenthal is a world renowned psychiatrist, uh, researcher and best-selling author who first described what is called SAD now, Seasonal Affective Disorder, and pioneered the use of light therapy as a treatment of SAD during 20 years of uh, at the National Institute of Health. I actually remember uh, telling my patients over the years, get the box. And <laughs> I, I just realized uh, recently that I was totally ignorant about all other work that he did. So... Uh, I am so excited to have him with us. Uh, A highly cited researcher, Dr. Rosenthal has written over 200 scholarly articles and co-authored and authored uh, 10 books, which include Winter Blues, uh, the the New York Times bestseller, Transcendence and the national bestsellers, The Gift of Adversity, and Supermind, Uh, the latest book Uh, That really, that's how I learned about Dr. Rosenthal. I I, I don't even know how I came across the book called Poetry Rx, How Fifty Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. I came across that book and got very excited because also, ladies and gentlemen, you know that Before I became a psychologist and social worker in the last 40 years in America, back in the Soviet Union, I taught literature in high school. So, and in fact, I was reading all, starting starting any class with reading poetry to my students. And now, even as a psychologist, very often I employ poetry in my uh, interaction with my clients or students if you want to call it. So anyway, without further ado, Dr. Rosenfall, welcome, welcome. And I'm so thankful to you for agreeing to come to this show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You you actually, before I start the interview, you're actually from South Africa, yes? Correct, yes. Mm-hmm. Do you know Wilbur
1: Smith? I do. do. He recently died, I saw. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. He was so famous, wasn't he? Yeah,
0: I love his reading. I, I came across his first book, you know, maybe two or three years ago, and out of 48 his his novels, I read already 14. I love ah, his writing.
1: Yeah, he was really,
0: and he was self-taught. He was a great guy. Yeah, I read about him, and, and an incredible researcher. All his incredible stories are so well documented and researched. It's amazing. So, Dr. Rosenthal, I want to tell you something. You know, my show is called Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. As I'm getting to know your work, and as I said before, I just know about your work with SAD, and then I came across this book on poetry. But I would say now, if you were to have a show like Dr. Rosenthal's, you would have to, you would call it Dr. Rosenthal's warehouse, because (laughs) you you have so Mm. many incredible tools. Even though when originally I I asked Eric, I contacted with Eric, yes, uh, about having a chance to interview you, I thought I would be interviewing you about the book, your latest book. But then I started... Looking at other books, which I'm, I'm so sorry I haven't read, but I already ordered them. I have only your book on poetry. Uh, and it's so exciting about all the work that you do. So, if you don't mind, we can start with your latest books, book on, on poetry. But I would love to ask you questions about uh, at least five other books, which are as relevant as when they were written, even the first one that I want to talk about uh, the St. John's Word. Uh, so but first, uh, I, I usually ask uh, people that I interview to tell them about themselves. If you don't mind, tell us what makes Norman Rosenthal tick. What is important to you? How did you come to where you are now as a human being?
1: Well, yeah, that's really a good question. Um, I've always been interested in science and the humanities and the workings of the human mind. So people have always fascinated me in wellness and sick. Uh, And uh, I have, growing up, I saw a lot of people who suffered in various ways behaved strangely and it fascinated me wondering why, why does somebody do this? Why do they do that? So it's natural that I wanted to study uh, psychiatric research. In fact, at age 16, I said I want to be a psychiatric researcher. But I also have always wanted to write. So in my writing, I managed to combine those twin interests and I draw heavily on my own personal experiences because they have informed me and taught me along the way. Uh, so that's a little bit of what makes me tick. Helping people, you know? Um, yes, yes. Yeah, Emily Dickinson says, if I can stop one heart from breaking, I shall not live in vain.
0: Amazing, you know, some 30 years ago, i share for a second, 30 years ago, I worked with someone who was suicidal, and, and she definitely would kill herself. And then, and then, thankfully, it worked out. I don't think I'm the only person who influenced her life, but I was instrumental somehow in helping her. And then I spoke to my students, and I said, you know something? If At that time, I was already, 30 years ago, I was already in practice for 10 years and i said you know if anything i did till this moment was making a buck you know you need to survive this is america capitalism i'm just making a living but i just helped this one human being and i know that she is now in a good place my life was worth it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i tell this story every time i teach my students you know it's written in talmud the one who saved who saves a man saves the world right I am so fortunate mm-hmm. so that we have an opportunity to have this impact on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, did you, how did you come up with this uh, idea of the book? Uh, well, yes,
1: like many things, it came up through an exchange that I was having with another person, in this case, a real a good friend of mine who called me late at night and said, you know, I'm, I've lost somebody I really love and I don't know how I'll ever recover. And, you know, I thought, now what am I going to say? You know, cliches come to mind, you know, time heals all wounds and et cetera. But I really wanted to pull out something original, different. I said, you know, losing is an art. And like any art, it can be developed. And he said, have you, he was a very cultured person. He said, have you ever read the poem? I said, what poem? And he said, One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. So I'd like to read it, if I may. Oh, absolutely, please. Because it was really my entry point into this whole exploration of mine. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you. The joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident, the art of losing's not too hard to master. Though it may look like, write it like disaster. And when he was done reading the poem, I could feel his mood lifting and strangely my mood lifted as well. And I thought, wow, A poem can change how people feel. And that really was the opening. That was like Alice falling through the rabbit hole into wonderland or all of these portal fantasies. You step through that little portal that leads you into a world of magic and wonder. And that's how I felt in this instance and then it was only a matter to say, wait, if that one can do it, what other poems could help people in other circumstances? And before I knew it, I had to pare it down to 50 because there were so many of them and so many people who resonated
0: with my message. It's, I have to tell you something, You know, I, I started reading your book and I read this uh, this poem and I really I was hoping that you would want to read to to read it to us but it was a very different experience hearing you read the poem i actually got an idea while you were reading after after i got kind of a physical sensation in the body when when you were reading and i will tell you a little bit later i already had it with another poem the similar experience Uh, i had this idea it would be so good if you could make a companion to this book, and you would read the poems.
1: Well, thank you. In fact, there is now an audio book, and there's an audio book, and they've got two professional voice actors. Now I want your voice. (laughs) Uh, a, A man reading the male poems, and a woman reading the female poems. And they did a wonderful job. I went through the entire draft of their reading, and I found a number of mistakes that were corrected. But now it's just beautiful. And it's a different voice. It's not mine, but um, they are professionals. And I've read books before, and it is tiring. Actually, it's hard if your voice isn't practiced. Uh So um, I was really thrilled that I got two such wonderful Actress to read the book. Uh, it's yeah. on Audible and Amazon. You
0: can get it. Mm, you know, I'm recording this interview, so you will you will receive a copy. But I'm so happy that I'm recording it because I will now have this poem uh, read by you, and I I loved listening to it. And I know I, a number of years ago, uh, I, I was going through kind of challenging time, getting divorced, and so it was a sad time. And I was reading and rereading one poem written by, um, by my teacher of blessed memory, uh, Madame Colette Bouquer Muscat, And it was so powerful. It was called, uh, it's called The Springing Fountain. It was so powerful that I, that I feel, as I was reading it week after week, every single day, it was healing me. And um, uh, I don't know any other poem that would make me feel physically like, oh, I, I, yeah, you probably know what I'm talking about. Some, it's not that I cannot breathe. It's that my, my breathing changes. I feel physically the poem. And uh, when you were reading this poem, that's how I felt. That's wonderful yeah yeah thank you thank you so much uh i would love to hear how you know this is just one poem and and it was the start of your journey into the writing this book but uh, i would like if you don't mind giving uh, some examples of how different poems had impact on on different patients uh, uh, dealing with uh, various issues
1: When I designed the book I divided it into five parts that capture five major domains of human existence. This first part which this poem falls into is loving and losing because if you love you risk losing and if you lose someone you love well then you had the love but now it's not there anymore. And the second one was responses to nature, which are very important for poetry and for human beings. The third one is the human experience. It's all the aspects of being human. The fourth one is uh, the search for meaning and uh, a design for living. And the last one is the final stage, which I call into the night. this one that I read before is the first of the first section. Now I'd like to read you the last of the last section on uh, aging and dying. And um, you will tell me whether you think this poem could help anybody. It's one of the most popular poems. That. Um, at funerals. And its story is amazing because I I set out the poem in each chapter. I set out the poem, give a little discussion, give people a few nuggets that they can take away. And then a little bit about the poet and how that poet came to write this poem. So I'm going to jump to the end and tell you a little bit about the poet. She was a Baltimore housewife and no poetic background at all. But they had, she and her husband had a refugee from Nazi Germany, staying with them. And this young woman knew that her mother was dying. And she was just overwrought. She said, I must go back. I must stand at her grave and weep for her. And this woman and her husband, who owned the house and were harboring this young person said it's just too dangerous. You just can't go back to Germany at this time. And then on a brown paper shopping bag, she sketched out this poem that I'm going to read you right now. Mary Elizabeth Fry was her name. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I'm not there. I did not die.
0: What a beautiful, beautiful thing. I, I did not get to the last part, the, the, the fifth part of your book. I'm on, uh, on the finished three. But beautiful, absolutely. I understand. Isn't it
1: amazing? You can see why it, it lifts people's spirits at a time when they really, really need that. Yes. And, um, you know, people read the book differently. Not everybody does it as, as thoroughly and well as you are. But some of them, they just, as one of my friends said, it's a very good book for snacking. <laughs> they just have a couple of poems. They think about it. Tomorrow they'll do another few. And they that's how they enjoy doing it. But everybody reads. And, and it's written so that each chapter is an entity of its own you can get any value from any chapter. You don't have to have read the first ones or the last ones, but together, when you put them all together, then it's like a mosaic where the whole picture comes to place and you say, yeah, I get it. I get it. These, these things can really make a difference to people's lives. And, and
0: when, it's, when certain feelings are expressed, or thoughts uh, in a way of poetry. It's very different, and it kind of hits almost different level within a person's reality uh, than when it's just a spoken word. For example, Elizabeth, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote so much about death and dying, mm-hmm. and she actually has a small book for children, when somebody dies, how to introduce it to them. And I'm thinking, yes, children and adults can understand intellectually dying and what happens. But when it's like this in this poem, it's so powerful. It
1: may be- it is so powerful. You know, they've, they've done scientific studies. This was done at the Max Planck Institute in Germany where they wired people's brains and bodies to electrodes and things. And they found that when good poetry was read to them, they would experience goosebumps and chills, just like what you were describing with that first. Suddenly. They can actually measure it, and it corresponds to the activation of the reward centers of the brain. Amazing. Um, If I may, um, you. Obviously, everybody's familiar with people who are embattled with each other. They, um, I see it often with couples who come to my office and it's a question of who's right. He did this, well, I did this because she did that. I'm right, she's wrong, He's. it's so on and so forth. Here's a poem by Rumi, and this is in the 1200s, that's how old it is. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field, I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So, through the centuries, this brilliant Persian poet is reaching out to us and saying to us, get beyond right and wrong. That's not where the action is. The action is in connecting, like two people lying in tall grass, looking at the sky. The world becomes too full to start arguing. And he even makes a generous gesture. I'll meet you there. Someone has to reach out with a hand when there's a conflict like that. And in fact, that issue of reconciliation has been fundamental to grievances, even at the national level. Like in my country, South Africa, there was the Truth and Reconciliation Act. Um, and I was fortunate enough to meet in person uh, the great Viktor Frankl. Um, This was in the 1990s, he was over 90 years old I went to his summer house with my friend who was the chairman of psychiatry at Vienna And I met this great man And you know, you just felt like you were in the presence of a great man And I knew his family had been really massacred in the Holocaust So I said to my friend, is there anything that's off limits here? And he was translating in German. He said, is there anything that I just should avoid? He came back. He says, no, you ask anything you want. So one of the things that I asked him was, had he forgiven the Germans? Because he was criticized for being too supportive of the new uh, Austrian government. And um, he says, you know, I don't really even know what forgiveness means. I would rather talk about reconciliation. You know, people have done terrible things to each other, but now they have to live with each other. Um, how do they do that? That's what I wonder, and that's what this poem is all about. It's all about people figuring out a way to get beyond, beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field, I'll meet you there. So I might share that with a, pa- with a patient or a couple in the sessions that I have. Because when I say, would you like to hear a poem? Historically, they've thought, you know, this guy's crazy. Here we are having a fight and he's disrupting the fight with a poem. What's going on here? But it all be- falls into
0: place. Beautiful. Yes. I, I, I totally understand how it can happen. I, I, I have read two of my patients' uh, poems. Um, in fact, you know Stephen Levine, uh, I don't even remember the name of you uh, his book that I read, but he said it's not that important to be right. It's much more important to be kind. Yes, and, yes. And there's a Buddhist saying is, and um,
1: Would you rather be right or be happy?
0: Oh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> you know, I am I, I I, really enjoying talking about this last book that you wrote, the poetry, and we could easily go to the end of this interview talking about it. But if you don't mind, I want to ask you a couple of questions. About no,
1: I'm very happy to switch gears. But before... Yes. Um, we do. I, I must say I was very thrilled that the New York Times picked this as one out of eight best self-help books of the year. So that was a really, I never happened to me before. So I just, I have to uh, share that with you. And the other thing is since it's the holidays are around the corner, this would be a very good holiday gift book because it's full of good messages that could make people feel better. So with that postscript, let's move on to your other questions. But
0: uh, frankly, I, I feel every one of those books that I have wrote down for myself here to, to ask questions about could be a great gift. I like. I ordered all of them.
1: Uh, Bless you. Thank you.
0: I tell and you which ones.
1: You can, you can count on your review. <laughs>
0: Uh, emotional revolution, how the science of feeling can transform your life. Uh, then then I wanted to ask you questions about the gifts uh, of adversity, then the supermind. Uh, and But before we go to that, you wrote in 1998 St. John's Word. Uh, I was a staff member of the Shakhtar Center for Complementary Medicine for 15 years, and Dr. Shakter Uh, prescribed, recommended to a lot of his patients who were going through uh, cancer, St. John's Word. You wrote a book on it. Psychiatrists are into prescribing drugs, particularly in 1998. How did you come up with the book and do you still recommend things that you're recommending um, in that book? Well, I was fascinated by that herb
1: because it has a history going back hundreds and hundreds of years in terms of its capacity to help melancholia or depression. And in fact, I went to the National Library of Medicine and pulled out a book by the Italian uh, physician Angelo Sala, uh, hundreds of years old. I saw this book, I couldn't believe I was actually holding it. And he says there, you know, I have used everything else. I used coral, I used stone, I used this, 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 and this. Nothing worked, but this herb worked. And then he actually goes into the detail of how you extract the active ingredient from the leaves of the plant and how you then go about administering it and how he saw essentially backward melancholic patients be brought back to life. So the book is very enthusiastic about the herb. I have since become much less enthusiastic because I realize that in many instances when you deal with supplements and herbaceuticals, you actually don't know what you're getting. They're poorly regulated, so you don't even know if there's anything. Some pills were found supposedly with St. John's wort, which is yellow, And they were actually saffron, which is also yellow. So they're able to perpetrate all kinds of fraud. You don't even know what you're getting. The second and more substantive issue is that St. John's Ward can interact with other drugs and lower their effectiveness, like even a birth control drug or a transplantation drug. And so since I couldn't verify the the veracity of the substance and never mind the freshness. Plants can vary from batch to batch in terms of the potency and the, you know, purity. Since I couldn't verify the amounts and also was concerned about interactions, some of my patients are still on St. John's Wort, but it's only the minority. I would rather deal with where, where there's an agency that regulates the, uh, The the product.
0: So there are there are some super reputable companies that produce supplements and uh, kind of have proven Mm -hmm. that they can be relied on.
1: Well, there was one for St John's Wort, and they were absolutely they were a German company, and they were totally reputable. They couldn't make a go of it in this country, so they're no longer on the market. As to the rest of them, I don't know. You know, you say they're reputable, but who's actually gone and checked? You
0: know. Right. Um, you know, I I use supplements for the last thirty years, and you you know through experience.
1: Well, I I would love to continue this conversation off offline because I'm right now looking around to see are there any supplements I should be taking and you know so many have been discredited through huge placebo trials that you know but I'd love to be on anything that's going to enhance life or extend life Uh, and
0: Yes, I like the idea. I, I'm not that interested in extending it, but I'm very interested in enhancing it.
1: Well, if you could enhance it, you would want to extend it.
0: Right. Uh, like the way I remember Woody Allen said uh, in order to live a long life, you need to give up all the things that make you want to live a long life. <laughs> uh, but here, that was a joke actually, but, but George um, um, Bernard Shaw said beautifully, When I die, I want all to be burned out. I am personally, I'm not afraid, I just shared with my sister about it, I'm not afraid of dying, I'm more afraid of living, <laughs> living not a full life. So that's why I take supplements, I exercise, I do kickboxing, I want to be active for as long as I live.
1: Well, I think all of those things are very good to do. <clears throat> the exercise, the vitality, yeah, I think everybody's shown that those are very good things to do. I think it's important to live a life unlike George Bernard Shaw that you want or, or Woody Allen that you want to live as long as as you can because I think that's a great goal. I think this life of ours is the most unbelievable privilege. To be able to be alive at all is such a small fraction of the history of the universe and not to mention to live a long life at a time when there are antibiotics and vaccinations and people aren't being cut down in their 20s and 30s and that's the end of it. The privilege of it all has not escaped me, and and so the point is: firstly, really enjoy it, and secondly, is be of some kind of service to people.
0: Thank you. Now let me go a little bit now in a in a different book, to a different book. Uh, emotional evolution: how the new science of feeling can transform your life. I, I assume it's basically the underlying principle is say say yes to life, whether it's good feeling or so not good it's not so good. I, I would love you to speak about the main ideas in this book because it, it, intuitively, I feel it's a very, very rich book that teaches you uh, saying yes to the now, to whatever happens.
1: Well, I think the main book, and especially when it was written, is the importance of emotions, which hadn't been recognized sufficiently, that we need emotions to make wise decisions. We need emotions to tell us what is constitutes a good life. It's It's not only a life where we amass lots of money or we are in the newspaper or this or that. It's a life that feels rich in in good feelings and good emotions, in connections, in relationships. Happiness is a great goal. You know, Aristotle said it was the ultimate goal because everything else you do, you do in order to become happy. But, But happiness you never pursue for anything other than for itself. So it was the ultimate and he had a point. And so to understand it and then you have to understand the negative emotions, anger, jealousy, um, etc. And through writing the book, I came to learn about the importance of anger and of managing anger, the importance of uh, You know, everything that's emotional. And now, of course, you see it's all even movies for children have different emotions represented by different characters. The importance of emotions has become all over uh, important in the public mind.
0: That's wonderful. When you speak about emotions, I I would like to make the distinction between emotion and feeling, because very often people kind of confuse two uh, if, if I understand correctly, you are really talking about feeling rather than just emotions necessarily, because emotion comes from Latin immovera, which means to move out. Not every person has to or needs to express those uh, feelings, but they, to, to recognize, to feel feelings. That's very important. Am I close to what yes, you Yes,
1: you are. The emotion is an inner experience. where The emotion is an outer experience, feeling. whereas Did the it. feeling is an inner experience. So when they study emotions in animals, they can measure. The animal chooses to punch the lever more times. It must be happy. It must be looking for something. It's getting rewarded. The animal avoids that it must be either anxious or afraid or something so emotions you can study objectively feelings obviously you only know subjectively because it's only in the domain of human beings that we can describe our feelings so you're absolutely right
0: so but basically you you are talking about the value of every single feeling, experience.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I'm going to, if I may, I know I'm, I'm jumping things, but, but I want to read a poem about feelings. Can I do that? Sure, absolutely, please. Again, we've got Rumi with his guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond."
0: Beautiful. You know, I read this in English in your book, but actually I know many of Rumi's poems by heart, uh, but in the Russian language.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow, okay, that's amazing, that's wonderful.
0: When I was, you know, I came to the United States at the age of 27, so I lived a long life, you know, there. And I love Rumi, absolutely Rumi. He is one of people people who, like what we call, got it. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: You know, um, his translator into English is Coleman Barks, and his translations are fantastic. I would be interested if you took a Russian translation of Rumi and the English by Coleman Barks, how much liberties Coleman Barks took with those poems, because he doesn't speak um, Farsi. He, He just took other people's translations and then he made his own version. So it's not clear how much is Rumi and how much is Coleman Barks, but he is credited with the incredible popularity of Rumi in English because his translations just seem to be full of spiritual depth. And I have a wonderful little story. You know, we had to, I had a struggle to get copyrights for all the poems that are still under copyright, which includes his translations. So I called him up and he answered his own phone and I spoke to him and he called me Norman. He said, Norman, you just take whatever you want. Use it however you like. Do you need me to sign something? Just send something for me to sign. He just wanted people to have the words of Rumi as yeah. translated by him. It was an amazing exhibition of generosity and and sharing. You know, another poem that I wrote that I included, um, Gillian Clark's uh, poem uh, Saint David's Day. Um, she's a Welsh poet. And uh, when I asked her, you know, can I use your poem? She said, of course, use it. Isn't that what
0: poetry is for? Beautiful, beautiful. I think that people who have something special to offer to the world have this generosity inside of them. They, They don't mind things being given away. It doesn't matter.
1: Well, you know, I understand everybody has to make a living, so I'm sympathetic to both sides of the coin, but when you come across this kind of generosity, it really moves me. Moves me, I know. Yeah.
0: Now, let, let me ask you uh, another question. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I am like, a, you know, a kid in a candy store. I have so many... Uh, so wonderful books to look at and I want to ask you questions about this one and this one uh, let me think which one first
1: let uh, me direct you if I may yes because please. because we shouldn't stop this conversation without mentioning the gift of adversity that's um, what I'm looking at yes the gift of gift of, adver- of adversity over the course of my life, I collected experiences from my own life, plus the people I met, including Viktor Frankl, whom I mentioned to you earlier. And I was going to call it "lessons that nobody ever taught me," because you know we all learn lessons from life. That, and then I thought, really, there. Whenever I, when I looked through all those lessons, I realized that I learned the most when things went wrong. Maybe there was a bad thing that happened to me or maybe I messed up or whatever, but they were my biggest lessons. And so it's organized very much like the poetry book. In fact, it gave me the idea for the poetry book. Of course, again, there are 50 little chapters. Each one has a story and then it has a few takeaway points at the end. And um it's, it's my, my old editor who acquired three of my books said to me, this is my favorite, my personal favorite, because every story has got its own, it's like Aesop's fables or whatever, it's got its own self-contained payoff and, and they're short. So people can just, you know, these days people are very busy and it's hard for them to read long texts so both the gift of adversity and poetry rx have got a number of short pieces that you, that together they make you know i think you know how i think of it if you've ever watched the ball falling in times square on new year's eve or yeah, new year's eve it's made out of all these waterford crystal segments but when they come together they're like one huge shining diamond coming down together and that's how i like to think of my book each chapter being one of these little shining crystal segments and then the whole thing should have some kind of shape that that is beyond the individual components that's my image that i have in my own mind that's
0: that's a beautiful Imagery. (laughs) Uh, You know, Dr. Rosenfeld, when I was 20, even in my 30s, uh, thinking about being turning 60, I was thinking like it's forever from now. (laughs) And I thought by the age of 60, I will be wise, having most answers to life. Now I'm 67. And I find that uh, I have more questions than answers. My listeners are middle-aged people, so m- my age and younger. So what would be if, if we would all gather and say, Dr. Rosenthal, give us your wisdom. You have many, many decades uh, of experience. Uh, What are the three things you want us to take away from meeting with you? What is your guidance?
1: My guidance will be retain your sense of curiosity. The questions themselves are incredibly valuable. So the fact that you have so many questions, it doesn't mean that you just haven't gotten the answers. It means that your your mind is still active and exploratory. I think curiosity is fantastic. So so stay curious. That would be the first thing that I would say. The second thing I would say is retain your sense of wonder. As we look at the world, as we look at people or nature, a sunset, uh, the song of a bird, r- retain your sense of the wonder of being alive in this incredibly fascinating and complex world that we live in. And the third thing I would say is retain your ability to love because love really is the glue that holds us all together. So those would be three things that I would say I have tried to um, hang on to. I actually haven't even tried. They've grown organically because they've come naturally through meditation, through friendships, through good fortune, even a little meeting like ours right now, I feel like I've made a new friend. So those would be the three things I would say, curiosity, wonder, and love.
0: Thank you. Thank you. you mentioned meditation, and you have another book on transcendental meditation. Uh, I do yoga every day, and within yoga there are meditating, meditative uh, uh, practices. But I've never done Transcendental Meditation, and if you don't mind, we have another five minutes introducing it to, to our listeners. And to me, is it something so different from regular meditation, you know, you can meditate on…
1: Yeah, uh, I, I believe that it really is. Um, because I came to it with a skepticism, you know, but I my mind is a very difficult mind to nail down. Focus on this. Focus on this. Focus on this. I won't do it. I've got a rebellious, defiant streak in me that doesn't go along with my mind being channeled. But this is it. They they teach you. It's personally taught. They teach you to access a mantra, in a very. It's mantras like a sound in a very automatic way that feels to me very comfortable and that is what I found personally is very centering when I'm the uh, recently I've skipped a few meditations I didn't feel that good those days Interesting. it enriches me and it's completely without any belief system or any worshipping of anything or anybody, to me it's just that somehow these monks in the Himalayas must have figured out this way to effortlessly access the sound such that when you do it again and again, so when I first really, you know, when I say when I first discovered it, now discovered I'm using in a way that I would say to you, you know, Peter, I've discovered a new restaurant and you've got to go. I didn't discover the restaurant. It was just a new experience for me. So when I discovered this for myself, um, I was so fascinated because there's a lot of science showing that it settles down blood pressure, does a lot of good things, that I wrote Transcendence. That was, to whatever, 2011. And I thought, well, I've said everything I've got to say about it. But over the next five years, the process of TM grew inside me such that I saw changes in my own mind as a result of this. And I basically, I interviewed 600 seasoned meditators um, and, and I compiled the answers to their questions and across the board, they had become um, more fulfilled human beings, more effective, more fulfilled. Plus, other people would remark to them about how much they had changed. It happened with me. Um, You you know, my wife said to me, you know, you've, you've totally changed since you did TM. I said, well, what was I like before? She said, oh, you were impossible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, we say a friend is a person who knows you very well and in spite of it loves you. Yes, yes, yes. Right. But do you go to a special school if somebody, if our listeners or I, if I want to learn TM, where do I call?
1: There are centers all over the country, and I would I would go and do it properly. Get it done, get it taught. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's paradoxical that the technique is simple, but it's like any knack. You've just got to get the hang of it. So you don't, you don't and do these it. people will stick with you until your technique is working and you're getting the benefit that is promised.
0: These days, you don't, you know, everything is done online. Can you do it online, or you have to go to the centre? I think there's a mixed model currently, given COVID, that they have a
1: one one-time personal meeting, and then I think that they move to online. But the story is constantly shifting. So just look it up, tm.org. Look it up on your um, on your browser, and you know you'll find some. Where are you located? In New York City. Oh my goodness! Um, as they say, I can hook you up.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. Let's let's keep in touch, Dr. Rosenthal. You gave me personally and all my listeners such an incredible gift. Thank you, thank you so much. I really you gave me a gift as well. I enjoyed, enjoyed talking with you. Keep touch, uh, and I have some ideas about supplements too.
1: Excellent, I would be fast I'd be interested in them you should um, you should have your producer send me an offline contact number such that we can chat
0: okay thank you okay bye- bye now bye bye ladies and gentlemen now our time together is coming to an end. I thank you for being with us today and uh, I hope to have your ear next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Peace to all who want to live in peace.